Welcome to The Savvy Sauce, where we have practical chats for intentional living. I'm your host, Laura Duggar, and I'm so glad you're here. Today's episode includes some thematic material. I want you to be aware before you listen in the presence of little ears. Samaritan Ministries is a community of Christians who bear one another's burdens when medical needs arise. Each month, members share medical costs while praying for and encouraging one another. Learn more at SamaritanMinistries.org slash SavvySauce. Light shines brightest in darkness. Today is an example of this. Dr. Diane Lingberg is my guest, and she has been a highly esteemed Christian psychologist and author for over 45 years. She specializes in the work of trauma, and she's one of the most compassionate humans I've ever encountered. We're going to discuss a lot of themes from her recent book entitled Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. Here's a quick backstory, though. Before we press record, guests and I will always pray for our time together, and we pray for you, the precious person who will eventually listen. Today, I was already overcome with gratitude at that point because I could feel God's love through Dr. Diane's graciousness and patience. So I pray that you come away from this time not only educated, but also full of light and remembering to turn to Jesus as our source of light as we get to shine His light in a dark world. Here's our chat. Welcome to the Savvy Sauce, Dr. Langberg. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, let's just begin here. Will you share how you originally got into this work you do today? People often ask me why I chose to work with trauma, and the answer is I didn't. It chose to work with me because it wasn't even a category when I started. I began counseling work in the early 1970s. Post-traumatic stress disorder became a diagnostic category in 1980. So I started out working with women and girls from whom I heard stories I'd never heard before and also with Vietnam vets and recognized similar symptoms in all of them, only there was no category to put them in over time. But uh, the work came to me, and I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I was a rare bird at the time. There were not very many females in the field, and so a lot of women or young women would ask to see me by virtue of my gender, not because I knew anything. What was the outside response from others? You mentioned you were a young female woman and a Christian who started doing this care. So how did other people respond to that? Well, there were several types of responses. I fortunately had parents that were extremely supportive. I'm not sure what would have happened without that. And I was well-respected and, you know, they were happy to have me in terms of being in graduate school and getting a PhD. And so I was at a secular university. I was the only female in my class, but nonetheless was well-received. My negative responses were from the Christian world, Hmm. largely from men who said I had no business doing what I was doing because the gifts that I had, which they at least affirmed, were for a husband and family, neither of which I had at the time. And that's what God gave them to me for. So that was a difficult time for me. But again, I had support in other corners, which was extremely helpful. 
and believed enough in what I'd been called to do that I quit listening to the ones who were the naysayers. Well, and we are all so grateful that you did and that you were able to overcome those lies. Was there any truth that stood out in that process? I'm just thinking of the woman listening today who has been sent those messages as well. So do you have any encouragement for her right now? Well, part of the history of going into the field also is that when I graduated from college, I I went to Europe in the summer, and then I spent several months at Labrie, which was a very helpful thing for me. It was a place in the evangelical world back then where a brain in a female body was welcomed, (laughs) Mm. Uh, which was not true everywhere. And I also connected with someone who worked there. It was very influential, who I think had been involved in social work or something before she landed at Labrie and she she lived there. But it was there that I made the decision to come home and go to graduate school and all of those things. And she was uh, very supportive in affirming that it was her belief as well as mine that God had called me to do whatever it was. And frankly, I had no idea what it was going to be. So, But that's what got me through. If I had been called by him and I turned from this, it's him I'm turning from. And uh, that can't be. <laughs> Wow. Yes, you sum that up so well. That calling from him and then the relationships that he provided for that encouragement. I appreciate hearing that. Well, you've taught for decades now about abuse and trauma and suffering. So I would just love for you to define power and abuse for us now. Well, I happen to like words, and I often go back to the origin of certain words, and the basic meaning of power is influence. And, of course, what I've come to understand over the decades is that every human being has influence. I had a father who spent some years in a nursing home, so I saw many things there of people who had little to no capacity to do things, but they still had influence because people in need draw out things from the rest of us to either help to honor them and to work with them in their need or to disregard them and see them as useless or whatever people do with that. So that broken body still has influence Hmm. and exposes what's in me. So power was given to us by God. He is the God of all power. We were created in his image. So he gave us influence and he called us to use it to bless. That was the original purpose of power. That's how he used his and it's how he called us to use ours. The word abuse comes from a Latin word, abutor, and it basically means to use wrongly. When you think about that and a human being, an adult or a child, I mean, to use another human being is an issue all by itself, and to use them wrongly is a double whammy. And so when we use other human beings to in some way protect ourselves, feed ourselves, build ourselves up, they have become food rather than an image bearer in the way we treat them. And so there we have used our influence to use another person in wrong ways. And I'm sure we're most familiar with something like physical abuse, and we can think of examples, but I think spiritual language can make it really confusing. So can you share what spiritual abuse may look like? 
Yes, which I would preface with saying that any kind of abuse done to a human being does spiritual damage. Whether there's overt spiritual abuse or not, you cannot use a human being wrongly and do damage to them without it also damaging their soul. So it runs across every kind of abuse, as far as I'm concerned. Spiritual abuse in a more specific way, perhaps, is when people take something sacred, such as part of the word of God, and use it to hurt or exploit another human being. And so we often find, for example, in cases of clergy sexual abuse or parents abusing a child in some way or whatever, but people in authority who present or actually do know more about the scriptures than the person they're abusing, theologically trained, or they just know more because they're an adult or something, and they use sacred language. God told me to do this to you so that... The word of God says you're supposed to submit to me, but what that really means is the word of God has told you to do evil on my behalf. And so when when spiritual language is used to exploit, to cover up, or any of those things, that's another level of spiritual abuse that's really very potent and does tremendous damage because it confuses people about who God is and what he really is saying. And to bring it back to what he is really saying, you flipped a paradigm even in your book. I remember learning that you discovered high power is correlated with less empathy. Yes, there's research about that. Yes. And yet Jesus come and flips that. So could you elaborate on both of those points? Research has shown that people who are in positions of high power, which could be anything, you know, it could be in a business or in a church or in a family or anything like that, have certain characteristics. And one of them is a lack of empathy. And so they do not enter into or have compassion for the people uh, over whom they are exercising that power. And people with low power tend to pay attention to high power people to figure out how to act so they don't get hurt or fired or whatever else they're worried about, but they have empathy. And so that empathy on their part can be manipulated by high power, specifically with scripture verses and things like that, for them to feel certain compassion for the perpetrator, basically, and not understand what's happening to them. And of course, we think about Jesus, who is a God of all power, coming in the flesh, as a baby, being the word made flesh on our behalf so that we see what high power looks like in a human life according to what God says. It's a stunning contrast. That he always, in it's a confusing way to present, but makes himself littler or humbles himself. Yes, by virtue of existing in the flesh, he was always that. Obviously, he was that he was an embryo, for goodness sakes. He was a baby. He was a little boy. But as a man, his power was always used to bless human beings, even when he's cracking whips and turning tables over, because what he's doing there is exposing what's going to kill the souls of the Pharisees. It's so helpful. And I don't think we can have this conversation without talking about his redeeming power And abuse isn't an easy topic to address, but it's so 
necessary. And I'm hoping that people can identify if they're on either side, if they're being abused or they are an abuser, or all of us can be repenting of areas where we've been complicit. So just to learn a little bit more, is there a predictable way that abuse of power typically plays out? Or do you think that every situation is different? (laughs) Am I allowed to say both? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, of course. (laughs) I think there are pieces to the abuse of power that run across all abuses. Part of that is the deception that the person uses to tell themselves what they're doing is okay when it isn't, and the deception of others so that they can cover up and continue abusing and those things. So things like that are in each sort of place. But at the same time, there are obviously, as you have said, many kinds of abuse, and people who abuse can use a particular modality, for lack of a better word, like they can just be known for their verbal trashing of people and never lay a hand on anybody, never be physical or whatever. It gets very confusing to people and helps them, sadly, accept certain levels of abuse as if it were normal, because it's not so flagrant. Do you have any examples to help us grasp what that may look like? Well, if you go back to the verbal abuse thing, in a home, you know, you can have a parent who is very verbally abusive, which would also include emotional abuse, but never does it outside the home. And so the spouse and the the children in that home are crushed, probably on a daily basis, by words, never tended to, are afraid to tell anybody because part of the verbal abuse is threatening things if you do, and it never gets cared for. It never gets rightly named. It's just who that person is, and this is what we have to do to try to avoid it. And people live in fear all the time. But people don't really see how profound and damaging such a thing is, especially with children who are being shaped by it, and nobody knows you can't you can't get comfort from anybody as opposed to other kinds of abuse that are either done in public or leave physical marks that can be seen so that it's easier for people to believe you you know if you're black and blue people tend to to believe that something bad happened at least if there's no sign of that which is true with verbal and emotional abuse people are far more likely to be skeptical which isolates even further Sure, when they're not believed or validated or understood for what they're going through, I can see where that would cause even more trauma. Yes. Oh, yes, it does. And now a brief message from our sponsor. A broken bone, cancer, pregnancy, medical emergency. We all know how quickly a healthcare need can arise. That's where Samaritan Ministries comes in connecting hundreds of thousands of Christians across the nation who care for one another's medical needs through prayer, encouragement, and financial support. It's not insurance, so you have the freedom to choose the healthcare providers, hospitals, and treatments that work best for you and your family. After you receive care, your medical bills are sent to Samaritan Ministries, and they'll notify members to pray for you and send money to help you pay those bills. 
members have access to online resources to help locate a quality provider, price medical procedures, and chat with a medical professional before visiting the doctor, saving time and money. It's biblical and affordable with a sharing program that could fit your budget and you can join today. Don't wait for the unexpected to happen. Visit SamaritanMinistries.org slash SavvySauce to see how healthcare sharing with Samaritan Ministries can work for your family. Again, that's SamaritanMinistries.org slash SavvySauce. Thanks for your sponsorship. I've heard you talk about the topic of grooming before. Could you explain what that is within abuse? Yes, it is a way of influencing another person so that what you do to them doesn't seem like what it is. If I meet with you, let's say I'm a pastor and I meet with you as a woman and I listen to what you're struggling with, maybe in your marriage or whatever, and then we meet together and I give you some scripture to think about. And then I say, well, you know, you have such a difficult time right now. Let's meet more often and then let's meet for coffee or let's go to lunch or something just to give you a break from what you're living with. What you're watching is somebody turn up the fire little by little and you can't feel it Mm -hmm. until eventually, you know, somebody needs to teach you what it's really like to be loved. And by then you're so used to listening and having some good treatment back that you're starving for anyway. Eventually, when it becomes sexual, you don't react to it the way you might have had you walked in the first time and that had been what happened. That makes sense. And I'm blanking on the analogy, but it's it the frog in the boiling water. Frog in the kettle. Yes, absolutely. You put it in cold water and turn it up little by little and the frog will die and won't know what was happening. Even that example makes me think that sometimes it will take people in the community to recognize this maybe and call it out. Has that been your experience or usually does a victim even know when they are being abused? Well, they often don't know they're being groomed. And in a system like with a pastor, such as I used in the last example, often doesn't know or want to know either because that's the person in power in their system. So even if she shows signs of not being okay with him or actually tells somebody something about what's happening, for them to care for her means they lose the leader they thought they had. And they don't want to do that. So she becomes the threat. And she's not only the threat to their personal relationship with this person and their beliefs about this person in power, she's a threat to the system. Because if enough people find out that this person is being sexual with a woman or several women or whatever, then we're going to have a big problem and it's going to be public and it's going to destroy the church. And this is God's church. We need to protect it. So it's very easy for those things to attempt to be told and be silenced to protect everything but God's name, frankly. Even as you elaborate on that, I can just hear those little half-truths that get mixed in and confuse us. So how can we identify if we are on either side of this as the abuser or the victim, or help to identify when someone else is going through this? Well, I think anytime we see behavior in somebody, perhaps an excessive amount of fear or things like that, or they try to say, you know, there's something going on I'm not really okay with, but I'm afraid to tell. 
So there may be vague things said to a friend or something. We need to pay attention and find out what's going on, but we need to first pay attention to ourselves and be a safe person for them. And that means we have to be willing to see things we don't want to be true. And we as human beings aren't very good at that. You know, we want to preserve what we love, what we care about. And then in these cases, it's got God's name attached to it. It's our space, the churches, it's our community. So there's a tremendous tilt toward having it not be true. And so we need to examine ourselves because what we forget in these things, and certainly it's been forgotten, you know, we look in the news and things like that, it's been forgotten in many places. The reason we're there is the person of Jesus Christ, not the organization. The reason we're there is to become more like him, and he hates sin. And he doesn't want his people engaged in it. And he wants his sheep protected from wolves who do this. And so we are actually, in preserving our organizations, we are abandoning him. Wow, you make it so much more clear. And I think it'd also be helpful for you to debunk a few myths for us now. So let's start with what do you think we often can wrongfully believe about victims? that it's their fault, that the way she dresses, of course she got abused, that she acts a certain way. We see what has happened to them. The boy who got abused by the youth pastor, you know, he's rambunctious and he's difficult. And we see the, the victims as being the cause, which is diametrically opposed to what our Lord said. He says, what comes out of a person comes from the heart of the person. So if a boy is sexually abused by a youth pastor, what we're learning is something about the youth pastor. Mm-hmm. If a woman is abused by a pastor, what we're learning is something about the pastor. It doesn't tell us about the woman. Her actions and her words and things tell us about her, but they don't tell us about what he did or she did. They have exposed their heart in their treatment of another person. You, and again, you go back to Jesus in the Gospels and the way he was treated by people, and they never moved him from how he was. You know, he says in the in the scriptures over and over again, I always do what pleases the Father. You know, you can throw rocks at me, you can make fun of me, you can call me a heretic, you can try to push me off a cliff, you can hang me on a cross. I always do what pleases the Father. Are there any topics or questions or guests you specifically want us to host this year? We value your input and we would love to hear from you. Email us anytime at info at thesavvysauce.com or reach out to us on social media. We're on Instagram and Facebook at The Savvy Sauce. We love connecting with you, so we hope you continue the conversation with us today. Victims rarely will come forward and admit abuse, but I've heard you say that they oftentimes will do it if they think it protects their perpetrator. Is that right? Well, It depends. Most victims don't come forward to tell the truth because they're terrified. And because they have believed that the problem is theirs, it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't something. Uh, And people who've been abused as children think like this because children's brains are egocentric. And so, you know, if I'm abused by a parent, it's because I'm bad, which is not true. 
But yes, there is a bonding oftentimes between a victim and a perpetrator. And the victim ends up working hard to protect the perpetrator on their own behalf, because that's the only person who's ever touched them in a way that wasn't cruel. Now, what they're doing may be completely immoral and abusive, but it's nice. (laughs) And it's the only person maybe who's listened to them about some things. And so if they expose the perpetrator, they lose what they originally came for and got that felt good. Okay, that kind of helps understand a little bit. And again, for victims, would you think that it's wise anytime someone comes forward as a victim, would you believe them right away? I assume they're telling me the truth. I mean, first of all, there's research that says that false accusations are somewhere between three and nine percent. So that means at least that 90 percent of the people who come forward are telling the truth. We react as if it's reversed. Yes, that's. I think that's what I'm getting at is it's so strange that we automatically assume they're lying when they've had to overcome so much to even share this. And then it's very unlikely that they're lying. But would you agree that you've seen most people disregard the victim's story? Yes, I think, I mean, if I look back over my almost 50 years, I can see a shift in that to some degree. But yes, absolutely. Because to find out that a parent, a boss, a pastor, a coach, whatever, is an abuser is going to upend all kinds of people's lives and a system and good things that lots of people liked about the organization or whatever. And we don't want it to be true. It's going to make a really big mess. Mm -hmm. And it's going to interfere. You know, um, there was a lot in the news not so long ago about the abuse in the Boy Scouts. And it's not that boys didn't come forward. They did. And they would write down what they said. And they put them in files that they named the perversion files and did nothing. So they believed the boys enough to write it down and put it in a file, which they rightly named. And the reason they didn't go any further than that was because to do that would be to destroy the organization that helps so many boys. And yet you said you've seen a shift. Will you tell me more about that? Well, more and more victims have come forward in the last years, uh, certainly in terms of churches and Christian organizations, but also things like the Boy Scouts and other organizations, more victims came forward. I mean, that's why the Catholic Church was in the news for so long. And so they are telling the truth. They have taken back some of the power that is was wrenched out of their hands by doing that. And partly, I think what has made a shift is that if one person comes forward and tells you a pastor has abused somebody, it's a little different if 20 people come forward. And so in some of these cases, you not only have adults talking about child abuse, you have many of them talking about the same abuse and the same abuser, and they're old enough to take it to court in the places where it's allowed. So people are discovering, of course, that there's been a lot of stuff that's been covered up, number one, that victims have often been silent, or if they have not, they have been shut up. And those particular cases, which took tremendous courage... Uh, have in some ways opened the door a little bit for victims to come forward. Hmm. 
doesn't mean things like the church are listening any better. I mean, there can be 10 women coming out of a church or out of a denomination who were talking about sexual abuse, and they get slammed. You're hurting the church of God. You're hurting Jesus' name. They're called names for doing it, whatever. So we, we have a long way to go. But I think victims, I think they think now more that it's right to come forward as opposed to wrong, which was always a lie. Telling the truth is never wrong. God is truth. Yes, that is a helpful statement to grasp onto. And going back to these myths, is there anything that we ignorantly believe about perpetrators? Well, that it was a mistake and it didn't happen but once and it won't happen again. One of the things I often say to people is there are certain things, you know, that people do that took a long time to develop on the inside and be acted on and grow. You don't need to go to bed tonight terrified that you might wake up tomorrow and sexually abuse somebody. It doesn't happen like that. It grows. It can start from a person's own child abuse, for that matter. It can start from pornography. It can start from rage. It can start from all kinds of things. And what happens over time is we begin to feel justified doing things we know are not justifiable. And can you elaborate on how we may be likely to deceive ourselves? There aren't very many people in life who would consider it good to be labeled evil. We don't want the term. We don't want the light. We run from the light. And we do that with things that are not nearly so ghastly as sexual abuse of a child. You know, we, we want to, somebody says, when you spoke to me that way, it was felt like this and did this damage to me. And we want to find a way to talk them out of it. I mean, if you go back to the Garden of Eden, that's what happened. You know, you, you ate the fruit I told you not to eat. She made me do it. <laughs> but, you know, back to what I said before, what came out of his heart tells us about his heart. What came out of hers tells us about hers. So the deceit was already there from the very beginning. And of course, they ate the fruit because they were deceived by the enemy. So the, the deceit is nurtured because it makes us feel better. It's like a drug. And when you take that a step further, I really appreciated how you unpacked one part of this. Instead of falling into deceit, it is healthy and wise to be self-aware. That's not something to fear or run from. Absolutely. And I think we have to learn and seek after seeing ourselves in the truth, in the light. But then your most recent book informs us about abuse taking place inside the church. So can you share some stories of your experience for anyone who may be skeptical that abuse of power does exist within the church? I mean, you just have to read the news. There was there were accusations of abuse of power with Mars Hill, not sexual, but otherwise. Accusations of uh, abuse with Willow Creek, accusations of abuse with the Robbie Zacharias organization. And there's tons of smaller churches that aren't so much in, I mean, they are in the news locally, but it's becoming something that people talk about a lot. People are writing about it. It's being written about in standard Christian uh, magazines and things like that, which it never was before. Well, and this is something even in biblical times, it was addressed in the parable of the wheat and tares. So could you elaborate on that parable and share some of that biblical truth with us? 
Yes, Jesus talks about the wheat and the tares, and part of what he says is if you sow them in the yard together, when they're growing, you can't tell the difference. So you can't pull out the tares, because if you do, you'll probably pull out the wheat. So you don't want to do that. And you only know which it is until it matures and bears fruit. And then you see what it is. But we don't understand how easily we are confused about what's counterfeit and what's real. And so if, if you have a leader or the head of an organization or something who does, you know, 65 things well and is liked and all of those things, and you start also realizing some things are not okay, we ignore the not okay because of what it will threaten. But eventually, the difference between the wheat and the tares becomes clear. Jesus says, by their fruits, you'll know them. So somebody can be brilliant in seminary, somebody can be charismatic in preaching, somebody can come into a church that's struggling and, you know, two years later have 900 people in it and everybody's fascinated by the sermons and all of those things and there could be abuse going on. And I don't mean to imply that, of course, there is. But the point is, we see what looks like the fruit in the outcome and assume goodness but it, it's something that looks like wheat. There's not good there that isn't yet seen. But the other piece, I think, is that if you look certainly at the evangelical church, but I, you know, and I think it's global, but it, the church has, I think, become seduced by the externals. So if you have a very articulate, well trained theologian in your pulpit who does a good job, who's bringing in people, who's bringing in money, and you have growth and all of those things, we assume that's all the fruit of the Spirit, which it may or may not be, because you can find really evil leaders of countries in his history and all of that who everybody thought was going to be a great leader. I mean, look at Hitler. And the church followed after him. But eventually you could tell the tares from the wheat. When we see that happen in a church, we want to say it's not true, just like the Boy Scouts did. What is this going to do to the name of Jesus? What is this going to do to our church? We're going to lose a lot of people. What are we going to do when we don't have the money to pay for this huge building anymore? But again, Jesus says what comes out of a person comes from their heart. You go back to like Galatians, you know, this is what, here's the fruit that looks like tares. And then it says, this is the fruit that looks like the Spirit. And none of it is external stuff like we were talking about. It's patience. It's kindness. It's gentleness. It's love. And you can have a brilliant, charismatic, congregation-growing person who does not have any of that fruit. Wow. Well, Dr. Diane, on a more personal note, as you've worked with this kind of abuse and seeing all of this for, you said, almost five decades, how do you still love the bride of Christ when you see individual members who call themselves Christians, when you see them abuse others under their care, especially when those abusers are leaders? It has been a place of battle several times in my life. I almost quit once. <laughs> But what I, I have eventually learned, I think burned into me, is the same thing that I started out with. I'm here because God called me to be here. 
to get mad and walk away would be to walk away from him. And that I will not do. And I am angry sometimes at the church, but the Lord I follow cracked a whip and turned tables over. So he understands that. And that's a normal reaction. I am brokenhearted over the church. But the Lord I follow stood on the hill outside Jerusalem, said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would, but you would not. He wept. And so in those places, which are difficult, I am not alone, ever. And I, of course, have many people in my life who stand in that same place, and there's mutual support and all kinds of things. But the bottom line for me is the same reason I came back from Switzerland and enrolled in school. This is what God's called me to do, even though I tried to tell him I quit once. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and forgive me if this is inappropriate, but I've always tried to understand something, and this is very confusing to me, but I love your perspective. Do you believe that someone can truly be a born-again Christian and live a lifestyle of consistently harming the sheep rather than protecting and feeding them? No. There's no fruit. The fruit is charm, charisma, uh, emotional impact, those kinds of things. They're not in Galatians. And they're not in my Lord. No. I mean, people in leadership sin, of course. Do they sin more than once? Probably. (laughs) But persist. You you have to get yourself to a certain place of significant deceit to continue to say, I serve God and worship Moloch. You have to twist your brain up. You have to do damage to your heart. And the fruit of the Spirit that is named very clearly in the Scriptures and shown very clearly in Jesus Christ is not in the life. The words may be there, but the character is not. And again, keep in mind that our foremost enemy has been called the Angel of Light. He could start a great church. Wow, that's really... Sorry, I'm yeah stunned by that. That is so true. We, we don't want it to be true because it means we have to be watchful in the place we don't want to have to watch anymore. Mm-hmm. We want to go to church and know it's safe. It's a haven. It's the sheep pen. But there are wolves dressed as sheep in the sheep pen. Which means wherever we go in this world, we have to pay attention and cannot assume safety. Now, I assume safety in my own home, but it's a tried and true and lived out safety for 47 years. And you have traveled the world. Have you ever witnessed evil be overcome with good? Yes, many times. And I have in my office many times. One of the ways I see it in my office is to see somebody beaten up by abuse and have no memories of never being abused growing up and all that after a lot of hard work for a long time become someone who loves Christ and brings his light and life wherever they go. That's evil over being come by good. That means what you did, you meant for evil, but God took it and turned me into a whole different person who looks like him. Mm-hmm. So it certainly happens on the individual level. I've also seen it in places like Rwanda, uh, where I've met with Christians and Christian counselors there many times and watch them out of the suffering of the genocide start to do things 
in that country and, and help other people in ways that had never occurred to anybody in that country before. You know, so other kinds of abuses now are recognized and help is offered for things like domestic abuse or sexual abuse or whatever. That's helpful to hear in individuals' lives what that would look like with your experience with Rwanda. And there's one story that involves the train during World War II. Yes. Would you share that with us? Yes, that was in Bulgaria where I heard that story during World War II. And the Nazis came to the leaders of the country, basically, and said, give us your Jews, obviously headed toward the concentration camps. And they said no. And so then they tried a second time and they took the Jews out of wherever they were in Bulgaria and put them in places in the country, on the farms, where they could not be found. They weren't registered there. I actually had a friend in graduate school, older than I was, who lived through World War II and was from an Eastern European country, and her parents put her out in the country. She never saw them again, but she was safe. But anyway, then a third time they came to Bulgaria and said, you have to bring the Jews, you have to put them on the train, because we're going to take them wherever they were going to take them. And they said, okay. And so they gathered all the Jews and they walked them down many miles to the train that they were ordered to be on. And they got on the train and then they were going to drive the train away with them. And three top officials in the country, and I don't remember off the top of my head what they were, stood on the tracks. And they said, you can take the Jews, but you have to kill us first. That's Jesus right there. That's his statement to the enemy. You know, you can have these people that I created and made in my image and love, but you have to kill me first. And that's such a powerful example. It always brings tears to my eyes and it makes me think, how then shall we live? So if we're taking this big concept of power and influence, let's use what we've learned so far and try and apply it to our daily lives so many people listening are parents. So for parents, what is some of your best encouragement for them to use their power wisely in raising their children? Well, as a parent, I, I have two sons. As a parent, you are shaping clay that's really malleable. And if you want to shape it well, you have to understand what that looks like. And you won't really understand it unless you work on yourself first. I mean, how do you teach a child to be honest if you haven't examined yourself and worked on your honesty and so forth? So I find both parenting and, frankly, doing therapy a place where I have been called to examine myself and grow in order to help someone else do the same. God always works both sides. Hmm. Always. And so I think it's very important for us as parents, now grandparents, to remember the vulnerability and the malleability and to make sure that who we are before him is the kind of shaping person that helps people look more like him and develop what he put in them to bless the earth. 
some people hold the assumption that men hold more power over women. What are your thoughts on that belief? I would encourage both genders to question their assumptions about that. Because <laughs> it's very easy for that to be something we assume that the way that we do it is right. And, you know, here's a couple verses to support it without really studying such things. Secondly, in a marriage, whether it's the male or the female, you have been given to each other to bless each other and to help each other flourish, not just as a couple, but as individuals. And so if you're so busy running around about authority, you're not going to do that. You want the person to blossom. You want them to bear fruit. You want them to be all that God has called them to be. And he puts some funny gifts in males and females that some of our little ways we think about things wouldn't allow. <laughs> and I think just to elaborate on that, I'm torn because I want to keep it equal and talk to both. But I do see in the realm of church, some may have heard the message that the wife and the marriage is they're just to support her husband, that her flourishing doesn't matter. And so what do you find to be true? And how would you encourage husbands to cultivate that flourishing? There is no human being on the earth that God has created that is not meant to, to flourish. There's not a single one. I don't care what gender they are. I don't care how old they are. <laughs> but that's a lie. It doesn't take two people to have one good one. That's not how it was made. And the gifts that a wife has are meant to certainly bless her husband and her children, but maybe the world. When I started out, I wasn't supposed to speak in public, according to a lot of people. And one of the first churches I went to to speak, which I was going because I worked for a Christian psychologist who said, if you want me to speak, you have to let her speak too. They spent weeks debating whether I could speak from the pulpit or had to use a music stand, could be on the stage or had to be on the floor and had to wear a hat or no hat. That's what they cared about. Eventually, I got to speak there, and I did not wear a hat. But I've been speaking like this for decades. It's certainly been something that has flourished, in part because of my husband's support. If I had been shut up, we wouldn't be talking today. The gifts that are put in somebody were put by God. So if, if you have a wife who does some things that are a little out of the category for you, that you grew up with, you got to go talk to God. He put them there. And he didn't just give them for you. He was not just thinking all about you to do that. <laughs> I think that's very practical. And it makes me wonder, are there any other practical steps that we're overlooking as we seek to apply the lessons learned from this time together? Our Lone Star is Christ, not our denomination, not what we were taught as children, not what we prefer, not what our church now is doing or saying. He's our lodestar. And if he's our lodestar, then we really need to study him. And I can promise you that he will turn your world upside down. And he will relabel things. And he will call you to do things that you wouldn't have believed you either could do or were even right to do. But they're like him. And you'll get some pushback. He did. People will want to hurt you and shut you up. That's what he got. And you will glorify God. And speaking of our one true hope now, how have you seen Christ use his redemptive power? Oh, my. 
Well, first of all, I'm not who I was almost 50 years ago. I've seen him use me, which is an astounding thing. I was a very shy book person. (laughs) So standing up in front of people was not something I had hoped to grow up and do. But I've had a front row seat to redemption with my work. I have seen people, when I mentioned this at the very beginning of Redeeming Power, the woman who came to me early on, before anybody knew anything about trauma, she was an incest victim. And she came and sat in my office in a chair with her legs folded up under her for six months and did not say a word. I had no idea what to do. I talked too much at the beginning. I finally shut up and just sat with her. What I found out later was that she'd been trafficked. This was before trafficking was even a word. Incest victim of every male in the family you could think of, not to mention other things. But that was the first time in her life, and she was probably close to 30, that she had ever sat in a room with another human being and nobody heard her. And she didn't want it to stop. And she was afraid that if she started talking, it would stop because I would tell her she was crazy and not believe her which is not what happened, of course. But, you know, when I was sitting over there as a young therapist thinking, I don't know how to do this. I'm doing this all wrong. I'm supposed to talk to people. I'm supposed to listen to people, but there's nobody talking. (laughs) Finally, I just, you know, God said, just sit there and be quiet. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I did. I learned a tremendous amount from her and, and watched redemption take place in her life over the years. Yes. Slow. But what a gift. And she's been a gift to me. She shaped my career, frankly. Wow. Such courage for someone like that. And for all of us listening who would love to spend more time with you, we may not get endless hours, but you do have so many books available that can mentor us. And I would just love for you to share a little bit about other resources you have available or where people could find you online. Yes. Actually, the easiest thing to do is to go to my website, which is dianelangberg.com. And there's some blogs there. The books are there. There's all kinds of videos of talks I've done in the U.S. and around the world on these topics uh, over the years. So that would probably be the easiest, easiest to find resource. And, you know, it's multifaceted. Wonderful. Thank you for making that so accessible. And you may be aware we are called the Savvy Sauce because savvy is synonymous with practical knowledge or insight. And so as my final question for you today, Dr. Langberg, what is your Savvy Sauce? (laughs) Well, it's probably multifaceted, but I'll just I'll tell you by telling you a little story. And that is when I wanted to quit (laughs) driving home from the office, overwhelmed by what I'd heard that day. I was literally banging on the steering wheel. And I was talking to God and I said, I quit. And he he was quiet. But eventually I, I sat in my chair that I'm in every morning early and felt prompted to write a list of the descriptions, description words of the work I do. So, you know, it's evil, it's ugly, it's soul damaging, it's, you know, whatever. I, I The list was long. And then felt prompted to write another list on the other side of the page that was the antidotes to those. So if something is ugly, beauty comes to mind. If something is chaotic, order comes to mind. Things like that. And what I realized was that, one, I was describing the work that I do. And two, 
I was describing the gifts of God that I was to absolutely, persistently pursue, which include things like we have a cottage in the woods somewhere, and so that's where a lot of my beauty comes from. But nature has been a place for me uh, of healing and hope and whatever. Disorder, I need order. If I need order, and I, I can listen to Bach. You know, he, ne he never did anything disordered in his life, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I have deliberately, practically pursued the things that are on the other side of the list that are the antidote. They're all gifts from him, but they're very human things. You know, it wasn't a list of a whole bunch of spiritual things. And I do those, but it was a list of a human being seeking good on an earth in very practical ways, very accessible ways. Wow. Dr. Langberg, I'm so humbled by the way you reflect Jesus. Your compassion and empathy and genuine care are so apparent and I'm grateful for your willingness to continue and to not quit, but to do this sanctifying and extremely important work each day. Thank you so much for being my guest. You're welcome. It was a privilege to do so. One more thing before you go. Have you heard the term gospel before? It simply means good news, and I want to share the best news with you. But it starts with the bad news. Every single one of us were born sinners, and God is perfect and holy, so he cannot be in the presence of sin. Therefore, we're separated from him. This means there's absolutely no chance we can make it to heaven on our own. So for you and for me, it means we deserve death, and we can never pay back the sacrifice we owe to be saved. We need a Savior. But God loved us so much, He made a way for His only Son to willingly die in our place as the perfect substitute. This gives us hope of life forever in right relationship with Him. That is good news. Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live and died in our place for our sin. This was God's plan to make a way to reconcile with us so that God can look at us and see Jesus. We can be covered and justified through the work Jesus finished, if we choose to receive what he has done for us. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to take our place. I pray someone today, right now, is touched and chooses to turn their life over to you. Will you clearly guide them and help them take their next step in faith to declare you as Lord of their life? We trust you to work and change the lives now for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, you are declaring him for me, so me for him. You get the opportunity to live your life for him. At this podcast, we are called Savvy for a reason. We want to give you practical tools to implement the knowledge you have learned. So you're ready to get started? First, tell someone. Say it out loud. Get a Bible. The first day I made this decision, my parents took me to Barnes & Noble to get the Quest NIV Bible, and I love it. Start by reading the book of John. Get connected locally, which basically means just tell someone who is part of the church in your community that you made a decision to follow Christ. 
I'm assuming they will be thrilled to talk with you about further steps, such as going to church and getting connected to other believers to encourage you. We want to celebrate with you too, so feel free to leave a comment for us if you made a decision for Christ. We also have show notes included where you can read scripture that describes this process. Finally, be encouraged. Luke 15.10 says, In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The heavens are praising with you for your decision today. If you've already received this good news, I pray that you have someone else to share it with today. You are loved, and I look forward to meeting you here next time.